All right, so this morning we're going to read from Matthew 1, verse 1 to 17. There's uh, Bibles within reach, probably, for most of you. Or you can turn to it on your phone, or it'll be behind me as well. Matthew 1, verses 1 to 17. All right, let's read God's Word. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Elikim, Elikim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kevin, for... <clears throat> leading us in prayer, and for your reading of Scripture. I'm sure a lot of people on the list of Scripture readers were really glad that their name didn't come up for this Sunday's passage. Give it to a seminary-trained guy, and, uh, and then we have full confidence in the pronunciation. Or did you spend most of yesterday Googling these names for how to pronounce them? No, you didn't, eh? just comes natural to you, of course. Um, 
Also, I want you all to know, I called Lincoln Logan. Those of you who knew who I was pointing at, his name is Lincoln. It is not Logan. He has forgiven me for that mistake, but I want to make it public that his name is indeed Lincoln, not Logan. Um, and just on the, the anniversary of, of the PCA, it's a pretty remarkable story. You know, 50 years ago, um, about 40,000 people uh, decided to form a denomination uh, out of two uh, kind of mainline denominations in the United States. Um, and 50 years later, that 40,000 has grown to 400,000. Uh, which is pretty remarkable, with uh, missionaries all over the world. It's the, the largest uh, reformed evangelical missionary sending denomination in the world, which is, is something to be very, very grateful for um, God's faithfulness over the, these past 50 years, this half century. Um, it's Advent, as you can all see. And so we are turning our attention to uh, the theme of what we're calling the return of the king. If you look at a number of uh, the old stories from different traditions, uh, Norse mythology, some of the old English uh, mythologies, uh, Greek stories, uh, in all kinds of, of different cultures, there's a, there's a theme that plays out in many of the great stories from these cultures. And it, and it goes something like this. There was this, this great, wonderful, gracious, wise king who ruled over uh, a nation with magnanimity, uh, with mag sorry magnanimity, with uh, gentleness, with great wisdom, and 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 the people loved him. And under his leadership and under his guidance, this nation flourished, and the people flourished, and all was well. But then, of course, something happens. It's not always the same in all the stories about what that thing is, but something happens that causes a rift where the king has to leave. And when he leaves, someone else fills the vacuum of leadership in that nation or in that state, someone evil. So, for example, in the story of Robin Hood, good, good King Richard, he goes on a crusade and his wicked brother John becomes the new king of England. And the, the land is plunged into darkness and the people are oppressed and all kinds of, of evil is done in the name of, of his lust for power and control. But in the middle of all that darkness, there's some prophecy, some oracle that says... This is not the end of the story. The king will return. Maybe on his way out the door, he, he whispers a promise to the people that things will not be darkness and, and horror all the time, but one day he will return and he will vanquish the evil one. He will remove the oppressors and he will usher in a new age of glorious flourishing for all. Now, this is a theme that goes through lots of, of old stories, and it's some of modern myths uh, have this, this theme as well. So, Lord of the Rings, you know, in, is, is very much along these lines. Um, there are others like Star Wars is, frankly, basically this storyline as well. Here's the question. Why is this a common theme that we see throughout different cultures and throughout history? Why is this a, a story that 
just seems to resonate with the human heart that we love stories like this. We love stories of the one who is going to come back and defeat evil in some way, shape, or form. Even Harry Potter is, is basically about that theme. And it is retold over and over and over again. The characters are different. The geography is different. The time is different. It could be science fiction-y in the future like Star Wars. It could be in some fantasy land like Middle Earth and Lord of the Rings. It could be at Hogwarts. But it's there over and over and over and over again. Why is that? Well... Interestingly enough, the Bible says that this common theme runs throughout the world's stories because it's actually true. You go back to the beginning of the book of, of the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, and we read that this is exactly what happened. That God was a great king who, out of his love, and I'm gonna try it again, magnanimity, boom, nailed it. Uh, he created people in his image. Male and female, he created them. And he created them to live in this paradise, in this, this beautiful garden, which had everything that their hearts could desire. And he lived in harmony with them so that under his gracious rule, they would flourish. But then something happened. An interloper inserted himself into God's perfect world and he enticed our first parents to rebel against their glorious king saying that they wanted to be kings and queens themselves and so they were banished they were separated from their good king and with that separation uh, all kinds of evil was inflicted upon our world oppression and poverty and and war and famine and the world became a terribly dark place and yet even in the midst of that darkness, even as Adam and Eve are being banished from the presence of their gracious king, God whispers a promise to them. He talks to Eve about a seed, that her seed would one day return, and he would crush that interloper, Satan, and he would destroy his work and he would restore his good kingdom to this world so that, so that we could once again live under the light of his grace and we too would flourish. He would come and he would put things right. Yes, he would suffer and yes, the battle would be, would be, uh, would be monumental. It would be cosmic in nature and all of, all of creation would be involved in this battle between good and evil. But good ultimately would triumph. That was the promise. And the reason I'm sharing this with you is because, essentially, Matthew, in this text that we just read, this genealogy, Matthew says that that time, the fulfillment of that promise, has finally come. It's the return of the king. Look at verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. The anointed one, the chosen one, the foretold one, the prophesied one. He is the son of David. He is in the lineage of the great kings. And he is the son of Abraham, the one to whom God said, I will bless the entire world through you. The time has come, Matthew says, for our waiting to be over. Because the king has returned. That's what... Matthew is trying to communicate to us in this genealogy. Now, we're going to look at this genealogy together 
in a little bit of depth, a little bit of depth, and, and just draw out some of the things that we learn from it. But before we do that, I just want to deal with a common objection that people have to this story I've just told you, that, that this is the true story, this is the true myth. People say, look, yeah, the Bible has this great story of a great king returning after a time away, blah, blah, blah. And the Greeks had their version of that. And the Romans had their version of that. And the Babylonians had their version of that. And it goes on and on. And everybody has their own version of that. Yes, it's a common myth. And, the, and, and Christianity teaches this myth, myth because it's a common myth. C.S. Lewis, who is a... a, a dead hero of mine, I could say. Uh, he used to believe that. C.S. Lewis was a classicist, meaning that he studied sort of ancient cultures and ancient literature and stuff. And, and he had read the story of Adonis and the stories of Osiris, these, these dying kings that die for their people, all that kind of stuff. And, and he would read the Gospels and he would say, hey, same thing. No different. These are all myths. But later on, he came to understand, partly because of the influence of a, of a friend of his named J.R.R. Tolkien, he came to understand that actually, the fact that there are so many common myths throughout history uh, along this same theme, but Christianity uh, uh, proclaims this myth as well, he says that, that that's actually evidence for the truth of it. Because, he says, this story... Unlike the myths that we read in ancient histories or the, the modern fantasies and fairy tales that we enjoy so much, this story, he says, is actually rooted in history. It's built upon actual historical facts, things that happened, things that we can, we can actually uh, measure and, uh, and test. Listen to how he puts it in his, uh, his little book, Mere Christianity. He says, the heart of Christianity is a myth which is also a fact, okay? A myth which is also a fact. See, a myth can just be a story, and it can be either true or untrue. Myth doesn't necessarily mean untrue, okay? The heart of Christianity is a myth which is also a fact. The old myth of the dying God, without ceasing to be a myth, comes down from the heaven of legend and imagination to the earth of history. It happens at a particular date, in a particular place, followed by definable historical consequences. We pass from a Balder or an Osiris dying, nobody knows when or where, to a historical person crucified. It is all in order under Pontius Pilate. By becoming fact, it does not cease to be myth. That is the miracle. And what he means by that, when he says, by becoming fact, it does not cease to be myth, he means that, that simply because this grand story that, that lives in the heart of us, longing for this return of this great king that, that seems to beat in the hearts of human cultures throughout history, he says, just because it actually happened, that doesn't mean that the longing is over. It doesn't mean that the longing is ended. It doesn't mean that the longing was, was, uh, uh, is no longer necessary. No, he's saying that it actually confirms the longing in us. That's the true miracle. Our hearts long for the return of the king. Matthew says it happened. The legend has become real. The king has landed. 
and the similarities between the Christian story and the myths around the world does not falsify it, no. In fact, they are verifiable and historical. Now, why this, well, what I'm trying to say is, this is why this genealogy is so important, okay? Because what Matthew is doing in this passage is he is establishing Jesus' bona fides. He's trying to convince the Jews who have been waiting so long for this character known as Messiah, Christ. Messiah is just the Hebrew word for the Greek word Christ, which means anointed. It's all the same thing, okay? He's, he's trying to establish for these Jews that this Jesus, he's the one they've been looking for. So let's look closely at this genealogy and see what we can learn. First of all, What's interesting about this genealogy is that it is a little bit different from the genealogy of Luke. Luke also gives a genealogy of Jesus, but he has a bunch of different names in his compared to Matthew's. Why is that? Well, it's because Matthew follows, um, follows Jesus' line down through Solomon, whereas Luke follows Jesus' line down through Nathan. Jesus' line through Solomon is his legal line. This is his royal line. This is the line that gives him the right to claim the title uh, of son of David, the one who is in line to become the next king of Israel. Nathan is the line of his maternal or his natural line. Because remember, Joseph, Jesus' father, is not Jesus' natural father. He is Jesus' adopted father because Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was not born uh, or conceived by a human being, but he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so Joseph is Jesus' father, not naturally, but legally. Okay? And Matthew is showing that Jesus is the legal heir to the throne. He is David's legal descendant. And remember, he's trying to prove that, these, that the Messiah, these Jews have been waiting for, for 42 generations, this guy Jesus is the one they've been waiting for. Because think about it, 42 generations, that's a long, long time to wait for something. And when there is a promise in your religious tradition of this magnitude, you can better believe that there's going to be people who are going to come up every now and then and say, I'm the guy. I'm here, the one you've all been waiting for. I have finally arrived. And so there's been a history of pretenders throughout uh, the, the Jewish history waiting. As they were waiting for the Messiah, there were people who were frauds who were coming along and saying, ha-ha, I'm the guy. And so now Matthew has a really major task on his hand. He has to try to convince these people that this time it's true. Jesus is the one they've been waiting for. And so what he does is he divides this genealogy into three different sections. Did you notice that when Kevin was reading that there were three distinct sections to this genealogy as he went back? Well, he did that because each of these sections was divided into 14 generations. Verse 17 says this, Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So three 14-generation sections. Now, why would he do that? Well, because if you subdivide it a little further, three 14s 
is the same as six sevens. Tick-tock, tick-tock. Okay, got it. Right? Or if you're me, we're still going tick-tock, tick-tock. Where's my calculator? That guy's got a calculator out right now. Good. Um, Three fourteens is the same as six sevens. Well, what's important about that? Well, seven is the number of perfection, of completion, of fulfillment in the Bible. So, for example, God created the heavens and the earth. In six days, he created the heavens and the earth. And what did he do? He rested on the seventh day. Because seven is a number of fulfillment, of completion, of something being done. And so what... uh, What Matthew is trying to emphasize here is that Jesus has come to fulfill the need for a Messiah. He is the what? He is the seventh, the first of the seventh generation. In other words, it's complete. The waiting is over. That's what he's trying to emphasize here. He is the Messiah. The Jews are going to try to disqualify Jesus as the Messiah over and over and over again throughout the gospel. So in John, for example, it happens pretty systematically in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8. The the Jews are saying, well, you know, he's a Galilean, so he can't be the Messiah. He was actually born in Bethlehem. Ha ha. Well, you know, he's a Samaritan. No, he's actually Jewish. He was illegitimately conceived. No, he was not illegitimately conceived. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And Matthew responds to each of these objections that the the Pharisees and the rulers are trying to make against Jesus right here in chapters 1 and 2 of his gospel because he wants them to know this Jesus is the real deal. It's pretty easy to become skeptical after 1,800 years, don't you think? It's been 1,800 years since Abraham, ballpark, 17, 18, 1,900 years, somewhere around there. They've been waiting this long For this Messiah, you can become skeptical. And so Matthew is doing his very best to emphasize that Jesus is the guy that they've all been waiting for. Another purpose of this genealogy is to prepare us to receive the Messiah that God sent rather than the Messiah that we want. I'll say that again. To prepare us to receive the Messiah, the King, that God actually sent as opposed to receiving the king that we kind of want or expect. Because you see, in these myths, all right, the king always comes from some noble line, some good stock, you could say. It may have been lost down through the generations, but that bloodline is always there. So, for example, in Lord of the Rings, I know I'm talking about Lord of the Rings again, but it's the best, so why not? Aragorn is a member of the Dunedain, which is a type of human from the northern parts of Middle-earth that had noble blood. And that blood had been, uh, uh, had been uh, what's, that, what's that called? Diluted. There you go. That blood had been diluting and diluting and diluting more and more over the centuries, but he still had this noble blood. That's why he can live so long. And those of you who wondered why, now you know. But here, Matthew, yes, he admits that Jesus is part of this noble line. He mentions Abraham. He talks about Isaac. He talks about Boaz. He talks about David. But he doesn't stop there. He includes all the bad dudes, too. He includes Ahaz, King Ahaz, who who actually sacrificed children to the god Molech. Not a good king. He includes the king Manasseh, who, Scripture says, was worse 
than the pagan kings around them. And he includes these people to show that Jesus doesn't come just to celebrate the royal line, but actually to save it. Jesus came from a truly human line, which includes the, the skeletons. It includes that, that crazy great-great-great-great-grandfather that you don't want to talk about when you talk about your family line and where your people came from. On top of that, he includes women. And at first, it seems a little bit random because, I mean, where's Ram's wife? Where's Aminadab's wife? They're not mentioned. No, 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 they're... There's four specific women mentioned, and every single one of them you could say is infamous. And there's some sort of sexual scandal around their story. Tamar pretends to be a prostitute. Rahab actually is a prostitute. Bathsheba committed adultery with David. He treated her virtually like a prostitute. Ruth... Ruth is the only one who looks a little bit noble, but there's that thing in, Ro in Ruth chapter 3 with, uh, you know, uncovering Boaz's feet, which can have some kind of overtones, probably not, but can. But here's one thing that you can't dismiss, and that's that she was a Moabite. She was from a people that were particularly known for their sexual immorality. These four infamous women are included in this genealogy. What's the point? Jesus came from a very, very human line. See, that's interesting, eh? Today, you can't convince people that Jesus is divine. Can't. I shouldn't say can't. Very hard to convince that Jesus is actually divine. In the early church, one of the problems that they had was convincing people that Jesus was actually human. There was a heresy known as docetism, which said that God is too glorious and great for him to, to be like a human being. And so he just pretended, he just sort of clothed himself in, in a human mirage for all of us to fall for, but he was never actually human because that would be degrading. And Matthew is saying he was human, he was flesh and blood like the rest of us. He's from real people who did really great things but did really, really terrible things as well. One of the objections people sometimes have of the Bible and of the Gospels in particular is, well, you know, how can we trust these stories? They're all hagiographic. Hagi hagiographic means they're all these stories where um, the bad stuff is left out and the good stuff is kept because that's how ancient biographies actually worked. The idea was to tell you how amazing Achilles was, not tell you how bad of a father or lousy friend he was or the times that he used to just kind of fly off the handle for no reason and get grumpy. No, no, no. All you hear are the good things about these ancient heroes because you're trying to be convinced that they are, in fact, heroes. And yet, here's Matthew revealing the dirt on Jesus' past. You know, back then it really, really mattered who your dad was. That's how, you that's how you understood whether a person was good or bad. You wanted to know their line. We do a little bit of that today. You know, who's your parents? Who's your mom? Who's your dad? Oh, yeah, I know that family. That's a good family. Hmm, I've heard about that family. There's some sideways characters in that family. 
makes me wonder about you. We shouldn't do it, but we do. So here's Jesus wanting to prove to the Jews that Jesus, here's Matthew, sorry, wanting to prove to the Jews that Jesus actually is this Messiah that they've been waiting for. And he spills the beans on the truth about Jesus' pedigree, about his family. That would be a bad idea if you're simply trying to sell a story. But his concern is not to simply tell us, sell a story. His concern is to tell the truth. And his concern is to show that the Messiah who came, came to save every kind of person. Good people, bad people, righteous people, unrighteous people, we all need a Savior. That's the story of the Bible. You know, this universal longing that, that cultures have is merely an expression of our universal sinfulness. And our universal need... For rescue. Why do we have this longing within us that says we want somebody to come and make everything right and do everything right and bring about goodness in the world? Why? It's because we all know deep down inside we can't pull it off. Our best leaders can't pull it off. Our most stable democratic governments can't pull it off. Our most altruistic social institutions can't pull it off because we know that we're flawed we know that we're weak we know that we cannot measure up we all need saving you know in verse 1 it says Jesus is the son of Abraham why does it say he's the son of Abraham because God's promise to Abraham was not that Abraham was going to save the world, but that through Abraham, God was going to save all people. All people on earth will be blessed through you. Genesis 12, verse 3. He's a savior for all, not just for some. Now, there's lots of applications, okay, to this, but I, wanna, I want to limit myself to one today. Hopefully that everyone in this room can identify with a little bit and then work out an implication. Every one of us knows what it's like to be on the outside looking in. Right? There's, there's the insiders of the club or group. Maybe, maybe you were a nerd in high school and you saw the cool kids and the cool group, and you wanted to be part of that, but for some reason you could just never break into that social circle. And you spent a lot of Friday nights at home because you didn't get invited to the party. Or maybe you had grand hopes and dreams and, and, and desires to be on that team. If you could just make that team, it's a hockey team, it's a soccer team, it's a pickleball team. You, you really wanted to be on that. I can't believe I didn't get much laughter for the pickleball team. One. Like, like, man, those, those, those Dundas pickleballers, they're so good. I want to be on the Dundas pickleball team. And you work really hard and you try your best and, and you, you, you give it your all. And still... You don't make it. And you, you want to say, I think it's politics. I don't know the right people. My parents didn't grease the wheels with the coaches by being really friendly and helpful as a, as a, as a, as a supportive family for this team or whatever. 
But you know deep down, well, it kind of has something to do with you. You didn't quite pull it off, right? Maybe you're, maybe you're not in the... There's a lot of young people here. I think you're students either at university or college or something. And maybe you're not quite in the program that you hoped for. And maybe you're hoping that if you work really hard this year, you can finally get what you need to get into that program next year. I would think everybody in this room has felt rejection somewhere along the line. You just weren't quite cool enough, quite popular enough, quite athletic enough, quite smart enough, just not quite enough. And the gospel speaks to your heart and it upends all of it. And it says... This king has come for everyone because everyone is an outsider to the kingdom of God and we're all looking in. And none of us has what it takes to actually get in. But this king came not only to tell us that salvation is here, but to make salvation real for us because he came to bring us back in. How? By becoming the ultimate outsider, even though he alone had every right to be on the inside. Jesus fulfilled every qualification, every requirement that God had for fellowship with him. Jesus fulfilled it perfectly. And yet, with that resume, he was rejected. He was made an outsider so that you could be brought in to that kingdom. It's called grace, friends, and it is like nothing else in this world. No, no, well, listen to Bono. The wisdom of Bono instead of the wisdom of Pastor Paul. This is what, what Bono said about grace, which is utterly unique in the world. In a in an interview, he, he said this. You see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, or in physics, in physical laws, every action is met by an equal or an opposite reaction. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea called grace. To upend all that as you reap what you sow, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. You know, if you lived during World War II in occupied territory, you lived in France, you lived in the Netherlands, you lived in Belgium, wherever, and you're in occupied territory, and you hear, it's over. You hear, it's over. The war is finally over. The Germans have been defeated. They are being pushed back. They're leaving your village. You see them getting into their trucks and packing up all their gear and driving out of town. How do you react? 
How would you have reacted if you had lived for three or four years under their occupation, every day waking up wondering, is this the day I tick off a Nazi enough that he decides to put a bullet in my head? But now it's over. They're leaving. How would you react? Wouldn't you be overjoyed? Wouldn't you explode with celebration, friends? Jesus came and he is rolling back the darkness even as we speak. Every time a person puts their trust in him, every time he takes a heart, the darkness screams in defeat. And if you are living under the weight of past hurts or, or grudges or disappointments, you need to focus on the king. The king who has returned and because he has returned, your mourning should be turned to dancing because the darkness has been overcome. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending the king that we needed, our King Jesus. Thank you that you told the truth about him, that he, he is a man, fully human, and that he's a man with a checkered past, just like every one of us. A genealogy that has some pretty notorious characters in it. Just like all of us. And yet he was oh so different because he was the son of God. Who entered in and identified himself with us in all these ways. So that when he died we could we could finally be returned and restored to the kingdom that we lost, the kingdom of our God. Allow us, Father, to live in the joy of that. Even as right now around the world, there's all kinds of stuff that depresses, all kinds of things that, that seem to indicate that evil is, is winning. Remind us again and again that evil has ultimately been defeated so that we might live every day with hope and with joy. In your son's name we pray, amen.